Open the Word of God to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Let me read the first 17 verses to you. So they read in the book and the law of God distinctly and gave the sense. That's Bible preaching. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet, and had taken his garments, and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Amen. Amen and amen. Thank you, Lord, for your precious word amen. written by the Apostle John. We do not have an account of this particular event of washing the disciples' feet in our Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Though Luke, in chapter 22, does deal with the issue at hand, and that is the competition among the group of disciples as to who would be greatest when Jesus was out of the picture. And Jesus takes care of it here with the example of foot washing. Here we go. Lord, help us. We want to get through these 17 verses in just a few minutes. Verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, let's go there. And I'll probably take more time right now on this clause than any other verse that we have to deal with because I want to just share some assumptions with you so that you don't have to play games with chronology. Right. Chronology in the life of our Lord is a game. It's a waste of time, and it distracts you from the lessons of our Lord. It keeps you from the doctrine. There are a number of issues that cannot be, with final certainty, settled. And it doesn't matter. Right. 
There are questions that I could ask you about this chapter that you cannot answer. Commentators can't answer them. But the Lord's given us a good balance of what the Gospels record, and so I just want to share some of those with you. This is the last Passover of our Lord's ministry. His four Passovers have been identified by John. The other writers don't tell us that. And I gave you one of the accounts to read last night in Matthew chapter 26, and Mark 14 and Luke 22 have it as well. Remember, the first feast of the Jewish year was the Passover. It was also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They are not two separate feasts. The Feast of Passover is eight days long. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is eight days long in its entirety. There was the eating of the Passover lamb on the 14th of Abib or Nisan, and then there were seven days following that, the 15th to the 21st of Unleavened Bread. There was no leaven eaten on the eighth day, the first day, the, the 21st day, the 15th day, any of the eight days, no one ever ate unleavened bread. Right. I mean, leavened bread, it was always unleavened. Because the Passover feast taken from the Exodus out of Egypt was that 14th day of the month, and that was the first event, but then there were seven days. And the first of those seven days was a high Sabbath or an exceptional holiday Sabbath, and the last day, 15th and 21st were exceptional holy days. They were Sabbaths, not weekly Sabbaths, but Feast of Unleavened Bread Sabbaths. The, the Passover was always the first full moon after the spring equinox. Easter, as our world calculates it, is the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. The seven days of unleavened bread began with a Sabbath and ended with a Sabbath this whole feast is called the Feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover. If you cannot read the Bible and understand that, you're going to get confused. You will get confused in places like Acts 12.4, where opponents of the King James Bible reject the King James Bible for using the word Easter. The word Easter in European languages, including English and other mainland nations, uses the word Easter for Passover. That's its second definition. The first definition is that so-called Christian holiday to commemorate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Acts 12, you'll need to remember the things that I just told you because it tells us that then were the days of unleavened bread. And everyone knows that's ever looked at a Bible that the word Easter there is over top of the Greek word Pasha for the Passover. Because that's what Herod was waiting to get out of the way. He wasn't waiting for his grandchildren to finish collecting eggs on the lawn. It just makes me sick about how ignorant people are and how much they want to argue about words without reading the Bible. It tells us exactly what feast was in place that he had to get out of the way before he would kill Peter. He had killed James. He saw that that excited the Jews. He wanted to kill Peter to excite the Jews further, to solidify his reign, but he wasn't going to do it during their feast, lest that would disturb them. So he was going to wait for it to be over, and it was a number of days for that to be over. We have a lengthy document on our website that I have sent you now a couple of times this week for you to be able to review that information. 
The gospel accounts of the final days of our Lord's life have confounded commentators because there are four gospel accounts looking at them from different angles. The things that confound them are irrelevant. There are a lot of things in the Bible that are quite irrelevant. And there is no church that has ever stood on this earth that we know of that cares more about details than our church. Details in the Word of God. We don't know of anyone that even comes close. But we also know that when Jehu rode into Samaria, two or three eunuchs looked out upon Jehu. Does that bother you? It says two or three. Was it two or was it three? Where's the God of heaven that we just had explained to us from Psalm 68? The God of heaven was letting you know that there's a lot of details in the Bible that don't matter. That's why he said two or three. Because it doesn't matter if it was two, and it doesn't matter if it was three. Amen. Adam Clark, bless his heart, the Methodist commentator, had this to say about the contentions about the last couple days of our Lord's life and about some of the references to the Passover that John uses in his gospel. He said this, I quote, Contending nations may be more easily reconciled than contending critics. End quote. I like that. I had to share it with you. Contending nations might be more easily reconciled than men who get some worthless idea in their mind about some of these days. John ignored much of what Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote to include things they did not write about. We get a lot more in John than we get from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Most concerns and questions by men have no value for grasping the spiritual lessons that are found here. There are things important and unimportant in God's Word, and we want to be prudent about that. So, by comparing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, here we go. We assume that the first eight verses of John chapter 12 is the supper at Bethany at Simon the leper's house, two days before Passover. Don't tell me about six days in verse 1. Have you read John 12 before, other than on a weekend? Don't try to tell me about the six days in verse 1. You don't even know what the six days are about in verse 1. I'm telling you that we're making an assumption because the events that happened at Simon the leper's house are the events that are described in John 12, 1 through 8. Sorry about all this, but i got to get this out of the way so that we can learn something. We assume that John chapter 12, 9 through 11, and I mean 12, not 13, is the initial conspiracy of Judas with the Jews to betray our Lord. We assume John chapter 12, verses 12 through 50, is our Lord's triumphant entry, meeting the Greeks, speaking to the Greeks, and teaching the day before Passover. We Because it says it's the next day. We assume in John 13, 1, it's a summary of Jesus' engaged affection for his apostles at the last Passover. We assume in verse 2 that it is the Passover supper proper that Jesus ate with his apostles. We assume in verses 3 through 17 is the foot washing lesson Jesus gave before the Lord's Supper. We assume in verses 18 through 30 is the identification of Judas the betrayer after the Lord's Supper. We assume in verses 31 through 38 are lessons of love and a warning to Peter. 
while yet in the upper room. We assume chapter 14, verses 1 through 31, are further lessons to the apostles before they left the upper room. We assume that chapters 15, 16, 17, and 18 are lessons on the road between the upper room and Gethsemane under a full moon. It's one of the most intimate possibilities in the Bible. The intimacy and spiritual depth of these final hours and chapters is unmatched. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have nothing even close to it. Without John's gospel, we would know little or nothing of these fabulous facts of these five chapters. So if you love the gospel of John, and some of you love gospel of John, and claim it's your favorite book of the Bible, then up through verse chapter 12, up through chapter 12, you have his public ministry. And you have five special chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, with his apostles at the last and after the last Passover that he had with them before Gethsemane. 18.1 tells us he goes into Gethsemane. Five chapters, Matthew, Mark, and Luke act like they didn't occur, but they are filled with personal, intimate teaching of Jesus to the twelve, then eleven, that he was about to leave on their own. So that words like, let not your heart be troubled, 14.1, was not written to you because your hot water heater went out. Let not your heart be troubled was written to, was spoken to them because he had just told them he was about to be betrayed, he was about to be killed, and Peter, their big loud-mouthed spokesman, was about to deny him three times. Let not your heart be troubled, and so forth and so on. Let's assume a few things about his final hours to reconcile various Passover events. Jesus ate the Passover with his apostles at the right Jewish time on the evening of the 14th. His words to Judas after communion, 1329, were misread by the apostles about a seven-day feast. When Jesus said to Judas in verse 27, that thou doest do quickly, and Judas left after the Last Supper, the apostles misread that by thinking that Judas left and that Jesus had sent him out to give some money to the poor or to buy something against the feast. And if you think the feast means that little lowly lamb that they ate on the night of the 14th, you don't know anything about the feast of the Passover because it's an eight-day feast. And for all eight days, you had to have unleavened bread. And so there were things to go get and other sacrifices to have and other meat to partake of beyond the little bit of mutton on the night of the 14th. They've already eaten the Passover by the time this false conclusion on their part is made by the apostles. Judas went out to get the rest of the mob to arrest our Lord. They thought that he went out to give some money to the poor since he carried the bag or that he went out to buy other things that they, as a group of 13 men, were in need of for the next seven days after this 14th day. In chapter 18, listen, let's get these out of the way. Chapter 18 and verse 28, when it says that they led Jesus from Caiaphas under the hall of judgment and it was early, 
And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Somebody that doesn't, hasn't read the Bible and doesn't know what the Passover is thinks that these Jewish leaders were still wanting to eat the Passover lamb, not realizing that the Passover is an eight-day feast. And there's a whole lot more involved in it than just that little supper of a Passover lamb. Otherwise, you have your Lord eating it at the wrong time. Okay, let's go to chapter 19 and verse 14. And it was the preparation of the Passover. Someone that hasn't read their Bible will say, this is preparing to get ready to eat the Passover lamb. Really? Why would it be called the preparation? What was there to prepare? If the next day was a Sabbath, however then that day would be a preparation day because you had to do all the work that you would ordinarily do on the Sabbath day. So by looking at 14 and also reading verse 31, John 19, 31, the Jews therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day. For that Sabbath day was in high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. That's about all the verses that I want to go through at this time. Those are some assumptions that we make about these chapters so that we don't have to worry about some of these things. If you want to fight these assumptions, try them. Why don't you go read 10 or 20 commentaries of men who've read the Bible more than you have on weekends and see if you can put all those events together, together better than what I just gave to you in the way of some assumptions. I don't like doing this. I have been tormented because I want to reconcile all these events as well as possible. And I just gave to you the best reconciliation possible for these events. We have supper in Bethany at Simon the leper's house in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 12. Because it was there that Mary anointed the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was two days before Passover. Because they tell us that very carefully. And it's then that Judas conspired with the Jews because Jesus rebuked him publicly in front of his peers. Because he wanted to open his mouth along with a few other apostles and criticize Mary for spending money that way on anointing the Lord. And so Judas went out from there to conspire with the Jews. He now had the motive that he wanted to betray the Lord Jesus Christ over to the Jews. The Jews had been looking for this opportunity for some time because they did not want to arrest Jesus in the presence of a multitude. They had to do it in private. Therefore, they would need an apostle to betray him so that they could find him in private because Jesus had hid himself well for three and a half years whenever he chose to, and they couldn't find him. At least one day occurs between that supper at Simon the leper's house and the Passover supper, and that's what the rest of John 12 is about, because it tells us, and the next week and the next day, we have the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, we have the Greeks coming to see Jesus, and we have Jesus making some announcements and pronouncements to them and about them that we don't have in the other Gospels. Then we have the Passover and the Lord's Supper. 
Jesus and the apostles ate the Passover at the right time, and that's John 13, 1 through 3. Jesus identified Judas, that's John 13, 18 through 30, which is in the other three Gospels. Jesus instituted our communion, not given in John 13, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already done such a good job of it. Jesus, John gives us a whole lot more. They're called chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. Jesus told Peter that he was going to deny him in all four gospel accounts. Jesus led them to the Garden of Gethsemane, all four gospel accounts, but you don't get to the garden all the way until, I've already taught it this morning, 18.1. The four chapters are wonderful. Foot washing, Holy Spirit, persecution, Holy Spirit, and a prayer to God in their presence about them. It is personal, and it is intimate, and it's what we're going to use for the Lord's Supper in a little while from now to look at some of the statements that Jesus made between the Lord's Supper and him actually dying because we have five chapters that we don't have in the other Gospels. And so for those of you that love the Gospel of John, I just wanted to, I had to get those things out of the way. Amen. Everybody wants to fuss about suppers. You know that six days before there was a supper at Lazarus? How do they know? They don't know. They're guessing. John Lightfoot and John Gill say that the, the supper at the house of Simon the leper extends all the way to 1431. Neat. Impossible, but neat. There, therefore, Judas was identified twice as the one to betray him and left the table twice after having a sob two days apart we anyway we want the lessons and the lessons are wonderful so we have John 13 let's go back to John 13 and learn something that matters we love details in our church we have one word arguments that no one else has we care about what David did in moving the Ark of the Covenant, what Cain did in making an offering to the Lord, what Moses did getting water out of a rock, and so forth and so on, we emphasize the details of God's Word. We argue from individual words throughout both Testaments. We defend the 22 years of Ahaziah and the 42 years of Ahaziah. But there are things that don't matter, and there's quite a few of them. We don't care who the ten nations are of the common market of Europe. Those ten nations have changed dramatically for the 2,000 years that they've existed. Right. We don't care what they are. We know, and every historian knows, that the Roman Empire degenerated into the ten nations of Europe. Sometimes it was nine. Should we have a hissy fit? Sometimes it was 19. It's far more than 10 right now. But we don't care because it doesn't matter. Because we have a beast that is Roman and degenerated into 10 horns. And we know that those 10 horns are the European nations. And then a little horn came up among them that held sway over all of them. Right. We don't need to know what the 10 nations are because it's impossible. 
because you're going to have to answer me, which year are you talking about? Because it varied so many times. It doesn't matter when the 1260 years of papal dominion of Europe began or ended. Because everyone knows that the papal dominion of Europe called the Dark Ages was approximately 12, 1300 years long. Who cares when it started or when it ended? And as soon as you meet somebody that wants to know when it started or when it ended, they can't get the lesson that it's papal. Right. Because they've decided to get hung up on some little detail that doesn't matter. What matters is what empire ruled the world in the form of a beast over Europe during, those, during that time we call the Dark Ages when martyrs were made by the inquisitions of a certain church. I'm working on a document called Two or Three Eunuchs. <laughs> and it's about, it's going to list, for example purposes, the things in the Bible that don't matter. Amen. So that we can try to keep our minds on the things that matter. We want spiritual lessons. We don't want mathematical facts that don't matter. We want mathematical facts that matter. Now when the Lord says three days and three nights, we get pretty worked up. But when he says two or three eunuchs, we don't. When we find out that the little horn of Rome plucked up three horns by the roots, we don't care. It doesn't matter what those three were. I could give you this three, these three, those three. You know, the 2300 days of Daniel chapter 8, because we can't pick the exact starting, we can, it's just how many solutions do you want? The 2300 days of Daniel chapter 8 that Antiochus Epiphanes would have an abomination in the temple in Jerusalem, when did it start and when did it end? There's lots of solutions that come up with 2,300 days. We don't care. I don't care when it started. I don't care when it ended. Why don't you care, Pastor? Because in Daniel chapter 8, which is the only place in the Bible that deals with the 2,300 days, it tells us that it was contained within the Greek Empire. And I know the Greek Empire was only 300 years long in absolute totality. Therefore, the 2,300 days cannot be 2,300 prophetic years, but they have to be days. And do the Jews to this day celebrate an event in which Judas Maccabees cleansed the temple of a number of years that Antiochus Epiphanes had an abomination in it? Yes and yes. And what does all this have to do with John? I just want to share with you that in John 12 and John 13, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, there are little differences about the order of events and the number of days involved. And John likes to use words about the Passover that if a person doesn't fully understand the eight days of that feast and that it can be called Passover eight days long or the Feast of Unleavened Bread and it's the same thing, they're going to get confused. When Jesus knew that his hour was come, in John 13, 1, Jesus has said many times in the Gospels, especially John, that his hour had not yet come. But now he knew his hour had come. He was at the end of his life. That he should depart out of this world unto the Father. He knew that he was going to die, be buried, rise again, and ascend to his Father. 
He had told the Jews and his apostles that he would go away and they would not be able to follow him or find him. And he's going to explain that again to them, that he was going to go to the Father and they should be excited about that because it was expedient for him to go away so that he could send them the Holy Spirit. Since he would depart, as this verse tells us, his apostles would be left, thus the intimacy for five chapters. This is a goodbye for a long time, in this sense. It's a goodbye for three days, and he's going to deal with that. And then they're going to rejoice with joy for 40 days because he's going to come back after being in the ground and his spirit in heaven for three days. But then he's going to go to a far country, as he describes it, in another place, in another gospel. And they would be left here in the world until they died and went to heaven and were with him. So he is going to be intimate with them here at the end of his relationship with them. Since he would depart... He must teach and warn these immature men to work together. These immature men had a serious problem. Do you remember the Mrs. Zebedee? Do you remember Mrs. Zebedee? Mrs. Zebedee came to Jesus and said, I have a request. I have a prayer request. And it was a little bigger than a hot water heater. I have a prayer request. Could my sons, James and John, sit on your left hand and your right hand in heaven? What did the other ten think of Mrs. Zebedee doing that for her two fair-haired boys? They were indignant because the apostles were always fighting who is going to be the greatest, who's going to be in charge of this band with the power we've got. We're casting out devils. We can perform miracles. We have the truth committed to us that no one else has. Jesus is going away. He's told us who's going to be in charge. And they fought about it. And Jesus had to address it in some of the other Gospels and tell them the Son of Man did not come to be, to be ministered unto, but to minister. And the greatest in my kingdom are those that serve. He had taken a little child at one point in time and told them, if you don't become like this, you don't have a place in my kingdom. And he's about to say that again. You have no place with me, Peter, if you don't learn this lesson I'm trying to teach right now by washing your feet. So as we open up John 13, and we have these five precious chapters, 1 through 12, we could call it the historical gospel of Jesus' life and his preaching lessons in public for 12 chapters. Then five intimate chapters with his apostles. Then his death then his resurrection, and then his final lessons. Peter has to meet the Lord again in John chapter 21. So here we are in John 13, 1. He is going to go to the Father, and that's that's going to leave his apostles alone. So he's going to comfort them. He tells them over and over in the next few chapters that he is comforting them for them to have peace. I want you to have peace. Let not your heart be troubled. He says that twice in John 14 because he's trying to relieve them and he has to teach them to get along with each other. Having loved his own which were in the world for three and a half years, he had chosen these men and loved them during his earthly ministry. He loved them unto the end. And the end being the Passover supper and the last supper, he loved them to the end. When you go read the other accounts, the disciples said, hey, it's about time for the Passover. What do you want us to do? And Jesus fixed supper this time. Are you aware of, aware of that? 
Jesus said, go into such and such a town. Go go into the city, and you're going to find there a man. Ask him if he's got the room all ready for us. Because everything's going to be taken care of. Jesus fixed the Last Supper. He loved them to the end. He had loved them for three and a half years, and he continued to love them. Verse 2, and supper being ended. This is the Passover supper ending. The devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. The devil is in Judas Iscariot, and he's been in him for two days. He's been gone in two days earlier to conspire with the Jews. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that directly. John implies that in John 12, 9 through 11. Supper being ended. We make the assumption it's the last supper. It's the Passover part of the last supper. It's not communion. That doesn't happen yet. The devil can put anything into a man's heart that God allows him to manipulate. God moved David against Israel, and how did God move David against Israel to number them? He turned them over to the devil. That's comparing 2 Samuel 24.1 and 1 Chronicles 21.1. The man after God's own heart was given over to the devil to do something crazy like numbering Israel that cost the lives of 70,000 men. If you give place or advantage to the devil, you could do anything. This happened to Judas Iscariot, who is also called Simon's son. His father was named Simon to betray him. The supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. He's got the devilish motive there. He's conspired with the Jews to do so. And he is going to go get the Jews at the, toward the end of this chapter and bring the mob to the Garden of Gethsemane where he knows the Lord is headed for that evening because that was the Lord's practice to go out of Jerusalem and go to Bethany and the Mount of Olives. There's so much more that could be said about that. The whole betrayal was prophesied in Psalm 41, Psalm 109, directly in both places and indirectly in Psalm 69. The potter's field where Judas ends up being buried was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 11. But we want to go to verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Now this is Jesus knowing his position in the universe. This is equivalent to Matthew 8. It's not the same event. It's equivalent to Matthew 28, 18, when Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, the universe was now going to be under the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he was come from God. Jesus knew these things before this moment, knew them after this moment, but they're identified right here, for you to understand what he is about to do and to appreciate it more fully. He's the Lord of the universe, and he's going to wash feet. Knowing that he was come from God and went to God. He knew that he was the only begotten son of the living and true God on a divine mission. He knew that he had all things in his hands. When we read Romans 12, 16, that tells us to be not high-minded, but to condescend to men of low estate. If you, right now, 
any one of you, because there are no men of high estate in this room, if any of you were to think about a man of low estate, what is the distance between you and them? We can't recognize it. We can't tell it. We can't see it. We don't know any difference. But now Jesus is the Lord of the universe. And all things are committed into his hands. He's from God, going back to God. He's on a divine mission. And he is about to stoop low. He's not washing the feet of the rabbis like Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He's not washing the feet of Caiaphas. He's dipping down to fishermen from Galilee. The men couldn't even speak without any, without others recognizing their accent, knowing they were rednecks and hadn't been educated. Because that's what the Bible says about them. That's a, for you to fully appreciate the foot washing, you got to get these verses that John gives us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And these are the lessons that count. It's not what day it was done on. Who cares what supper ended? I just told you what supper ended, but it doesn't matter. It's the lesson that Jesus was the Lord of the universe and he's going to wash the feet of Galilean fishermen. <clears throat> the following act that we're about to read about is assisted by this verse. This glorious man, our Savior, our Lord, our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, infinitely superior to any other man, got up from supper to wash fishermen's feet. Verse 4, he riseth from supper, laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. He rose from the Passover supper. He laid aside his garments. He couldn't do them in the long flowing garments, getting up and down at the feet of the apostles, so he laid aside his garments. It reminds me of his father in the streets of Jerusalem when he danced with all his might before the ark. And his wife, Michael, made fun of him for doing so, for not maintaining his royal apparel and his royal attire all the time. Here's the Lord laying aside his garments, getting down to some relatively undergarments for the convenience sake of getting down to the feet of his apostles. He laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself like a slave. Yes, we could preach on each one of these verses, but we're not going to. Are you willing? You want to start learning lessons? Are you willing to do anything like this? Right. Though for you to do something for the least member of this congregation is not stooping at all. Amen. You say, well, what about Romans 12, 16? That requires some high men and we don't have any. Where's the household of Caesar in this church? I'm not aware of any. We're a bunch of mutts that have come together in the North American continent from all over the place. Right. But we want, to be, we want to look at this because we've got to get to the 17th verse says, Happy are you if you know these things and do them. Right. Well, what did he do? He, the Lord and Master, got down and washed some feet. An actual act of service. He didn't have a little ordinance there. He didn't exchange feet washing. And he didn't wash clean feet. He didn't do anything that the Catholics do, or the Baptists do, or the primitive Baptists do, or what we once did in this church. Right. He did a real act of service. Amen. A real act of humility. 
and a real act of love. The way that we did it, there wasn't really any love, humility, or service involved in it. It was just a ritual. Thank you, Lord, for saving us from the blind guides leading the blind. All from Rome. Rome Rome does it the best. The Pope has the best foot washing practice of any that I've read about. Because he washes the dirty feet of 13 and they don't wash his. A foot washing exchange like we used to have? That's embarrassing for me to say it from this pulpit. That we actually did such a thing. It's not even a second cousin to John 13. It wasn't second cousin to anything except Rome. And it wasn't second cousin then. It was first at least. If not a fraternal twin. Verse 5. After that he poureth water into a basin. Look at the details John gives us. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't even tell us there was any foot washing. But look at the details we have here for you to think step by step. Step by step of Jesus acting like a servant. He poureth water into a basin. My Lord, your Lord, the King of the universe, the one that by John's inspiration from the Holy Spirit just said that the Father had given all things into his hand, is now pouring water. And began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Verse 6. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Peter's always got to say something. Is there a lesson in that? Those of you that always have to say something, can you learn to sh- be quiet? Can you learn to be quiet? Can you learn to watch and listen before you say something? The man gets himself into trouble everywhere we turn in the New Testament. This is, this is pretty gentle, but it's not going to be gentle. He starts off pretty well. Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And the emphasis is on thou and my. Dost thou wash my feet? I don't think so. Not on my watch. You, can, well, you, can, you know what Peter's thinking. Yep. And so that's verse 6. Verse 7, you can tell that I'm going faster this time than John 12. Okay. John 7, Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. This is one of the interesting statements in John 13. If all Peter was supposed to know was that there was foot washing, he knew it intimately and perfectly, and so does any child about three years of age and older reading the passage. But see, there was a whole lot more at stake here than washing feet. That's because there are people that don't care about the lesson. They want the ceremony. And they've got Rome that gave them the ceremony. And they've got granddaddy that washed feet. And because granddaddy washed feet in a little clapboard building that had an outhouse, they're going to wash feet because they're not going to think about it. They're not going to go into John 13 and think that Jesus kept saying, you don't know what I'm doing. Peter knew exactly what he was doing if foot washing was the issue. But foot washing wasn't the issue. What the issue was was love, humility, and service. 
what Peter was going to have to do to 10 other guys that he thought he was better than. Did Peter think he was better than them? Of course he did. He said in just a few, few minutes, Lord, if all the rest of these men, if all men forsake you and leave, like you've said about your group of apostles, I can promise you one thing, I'll never do it. That's why Jesus in John chapter 12 has to ask Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me more than these? Do you really think that you love me more than these other apostles? Love me? Verse 7, Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. I'm going to explain it shortly, Peter. Just let me wash your feet. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Now Jesus had just said, You don't know what I'm really doing, but if you'll wait, I'll explain it to you. But that's not good enough for certain types. And so for any of those certain types, let me say again, let us learn that like to speak first and think later, to think first before we speak, and to be calm and to watch and listen. Peter saith unto him in verse 8, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. If you do not allow me to wash your feet, and the lesson that I'm about to explain to you, then your role in my kingdom is forfeited. You do not have a role in my kingdom. Because that's what's at stake. Jesus, knowing that all things were put into his hands, and that he was from God and was going back to God, the Bible tells us in other Gospels that he was going on a journey to a far country and was giving authority to men. And the authority was, he was giving was to these 11 men, and they had to get along with each other. And so the issue is, Peter, if you don't take my instruction and lesson, and if you don't graduate with my certificate from Apostleship 101, you do not have a role in my kingdom. That's verse 8. Verse 9, Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, if that's the case, not my feet only, but I'll take a bath. Do my hands and my head. The rest of the exposed parts of me. If it, if it has to do with a role in your kingdom, then wash more than just my feet. Verse 10, Jesus saith to him, He that is washed, Peter, needeth not save to wash his feet but is clean every whit. Peter, you and your fellow apostles just came from the bath. You're all clean. Your hands haven't touched anything. Your head hasn't touched anything. Your body's still clean from your bath, but you had to walk across the ground and get your feet dirty. All I'm doing is washing your feet because that was the practice in that place. Every other part of your body was your responsibility. But when you had to cover some ground, even if it was just 100 yards, in a, have you ever worn sandals? In a sandy climate. Right. In a dusty climate. Your feet get dirty very quickly. And so that's the intent of verse 10. I don't need to wash your hands or your head, Peter, because they're already clean. You've already taken care of them. But on your way to this upper room, your feet were dirty, and while someone else would typically do it in a well-planned evening by an exceptional host, I'm taking care of your feet tonight. He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet. See, because we haven't practiced this very many times. 
When was the last time that you washed the feet of someone coming to your house from a bath that got their feet dirty because they had open shoes? You've never done it. It's hard for you to understand the verse. There isn't a spiritual lesson here. There isn't a salvation lesson here. Because remember, I've only read the first half of the verse. Don't jump ahead. I haven't read the second half of the verse yet. I've only read the first half. Jesus saith, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. The rest of his body is clean. All he needs to do is get those feet caught back up because he had to walk from the bath over here to the upper room. Oh, people try to get some spiritual lesson out of that. Sometimes they want to spiritualize everything. The second half of verse 10. And ye are clean, but not all. Now he's not talking about body parts, and he shifts his pronouns. Notice, in the first half, he. Is that a singular pronoun? He that is washed needeth not save to wash his singular pronoun, but is. Is that singular? But is. That singular person is clean every whit. Peter, you've already had your bath. I just need to catch your feet up. And ye. He switches to the whole room, and you twelve men, because that's the plural ye, are clean, but not all. And he means this half spiritually because we have John 13, 11. John 13, 11 says, explaining with the coordinating conjunction for, for he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, he that is washed needeth not... Oh, it doesn't say that in verse 11, does it? Does it say in verse 11, for he knew who should betray him, or he knew that Peter would deny him, or he knew that Peter would sin? Therefore said he, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet? No, the Bible doesn't say that. Verse 11 is explaining only the second half of verse 10, and so keep it there. For he knew who should betray him, that's Judas Iscariot, therefore said he, ye are not all clean, meaning of you twelve, one of you's a devil. Because he's already called him a devil in John chapter 6 and verse 7d. Verse 70 of John chapter 6. So there's verse 10. Do you understand it? The first half, Peter, don't ask me, I'm washing feet. Can you allow your Lord and Master to do something without you modifying it? I only need to wash your feet, Peter. First of all, you say you don't want me to touch you. Now you want me to do your head and your hands. Your head and your hands don't need it. You just bathe them. You're every bit clean, but I need to catch your feet back up. That's the first half of 10. The second half of 10 is our Lord giving us a little tiny hint here. For our learning and for our lesson, he's going to give us a long hint in verses 18 through 30, and it's not going to be much of a hint. In verses 18 through 30 of this chapter, the very next thing, after he finishes washing their feet, will be all about Judas Iscariot. But right now, it's just mentioning it, and I want you to think with me about the Lord and Master Jesus Christ having to get down and wash the feet of Judas Iscariot. You are going to have enemies in this church. I always have enemies in this church. I've never been a pastor without an enemy. But are we willing to wash the feet of our enemies and serve them? 
Jesus was. And all things were committed to his hands. He was come from God. He was going to God. We're nothing like that in comparison. But are we willing to do that? I want you to love the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us a little hint right here in, in verse 10 and 11 of John 13 as the way the Holy Spirit gave us the account of the event that Judas, we're reminded of Judas. Verse 12. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you. What's the simplistic answer of those who don't think? Yes, Lord, you washed our feet. Most of you have no idea why I'm stressing these points because you've never been in debate with anyone about washing feet as a church ordinance of the New Testament. And so I'm telling you how to go through this passage. If foot washing was the issue, Peter understood it, and so did Judas, and so did everyone, and so would any three-year-old that had wandered into the room. Because foot washing wasn't the issue. Foot washing was not what Jesus wanted Peter to know, nor the rest of the apostles. Know ye, plural, you twelve men, do you know what I have done to you? Well, you've washed our feet. That wasn't the issue. I have shown my love to you. That's why it's stated in verse 1. I have humbly served you, though the universe is mine. And he's about to explain it further. You call me your Lord and Master, and I am. I just washed your feet. Surely you can serve and love and humble yourselves with each other and consider yourselves all on a plane as brothers and not have to have someone in charge or try to be in charge yourselves. Because the issue wasn't washing feet to institute some new ordinance in the New Testament church. The washing of the feet was only an example for the lesson of love, humility, and service. He had told Peter earlier, that he did not understand what Jesus was doing, but that he would shortly, and now he's about to have it explained to him. Ye call me, verse 13, Master and Lord, and ye say, well, for so I am. And if you go through the gospel accounts, the apostles were used to calling Jesus Master, and the apostles were used to calling Jesus Lord. And we have Peter on record doing both. And they were right. Jesus was their Lord and Master. Lord and masters did not wash the feet of servants. But in this case, he did. Verse 14, If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. What I, remember, it's not the washing of feet that's the lesson. Right, right, yep. It's the love, humility, and service of washing feet that is the lesson. So what I've done to you, and it wasn't washing feet being the issue, It was the love, condescension, humility, and service. You ought to be able to have that kind of love, condescension, humility, and service towards your brothers in the apostleship. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash 
one another's feet. It is blind guides that make this a ceremony and ritual for all church members forever. They are enemies of the gospel in this point because they're missing the lesson for a ceremony. Now, I've been a member of two churches where we've washed feet. So I know how to do it, and I know what it's like. And I know how it's defended, and I know how it's practiced. Of pulling out a bunch of basins, lining up chairs facing each other, and we just go and sit down, and whoever we sit across from, we exchange foot washing with them. Exchanging a foot washing is not washing feet any more than a gift exchange at Christmas is giving. It's nothing. There's no humility. There's no service. And I've said this many times, a few, well, a few times I've preached on foot washing. I can promise you that on a Sunday where foot washing is going to be practiced, everyone had the cleanest feet of the year. You had had a pedicure and then another one just to make sure. You had cologne on your feet. They weren't dirty. There wasn't service involved. There wasn't humility involved. There's no humility involved when, hey, I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine. Okay, who wants to go first? Okay, I'll go first. Then you go, and we'll get this thing over with. That's what it was like. Yep. You say, well, I've, been, I've had more emotion at it. Yes, and I would suspect that you're probably a woman, and I would suspect that you kind of like that glowing Christmas tree as well. I think that you liked it when your family sat around and were eating popcorn. You turned the lights out and there were little bulbs flickering on that green tree. And you could smell the evergreen. And there were presents there and all of your children were happy because children get happy when they're about to get presents. Mm -hmm. And so when children get happy, mommies are happy. And so I would suspect that some woman that had an emotional experience at a foot washing service had other emotional experiences that we don't really want to use as our criteria for picking Bible doctrine. Those blind guides that lead the blind into a ditch, and Jesus would say, let them all go in there with the Pope in front. Why don't you ask them, why don't you pray the way the Lord prayed and said, this is the way to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so forth and so on. Why don't they pray that way? Because their primitive Baptist granddaddies didn't do it that way. But now the Roman Catholics are consistent, and I want to give the Pope some honor. He washes feet as a ceremony, and he says the Lord's Prayer as a ceremony. Right. And he makes it a ritual on those beads called the Rosary of the Catholic Church. Ten Hail Marys, one Our Father. Why aren't they consistent? They're worse than Rome. Why don't you ask them, why don't you pray in a closet? Since Jesus said that when you pray, you should pray in a closet where no one can see you. Why do you pray in public? Prayers should be in a closet if you're going to follow the Bible the way you are and turn everything into a ceremony or a ritual. Are we supposed to pray in closets? No, we are not. That is an illustration. That is an example. Are we supposed to wash each other's feet? 
No, we are not. We are supposed to love each other and humbly serve each other and condescend to each other. And, and exchanging washing of clean feet isn't washing feet anyway. Right. Why don't you ask them, why is there no record in the epistles of the apostles of any church washing feet? And since that is the case, why don't you care about the apostles giving five times an express commandment that the church members of New Testament churches should kiss each other? Because granddaddy and the primitive Baptists didn't kiss. That's why. They've picked and chosen from the word of God by tradition, coming from Rome, what they were going to practice. That is such hypocrisy. That is such a contradiction of scripture. I have Paul four times and Peter one time saying, salute one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Doesn't say men or women. They were to kiss, 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 kissy. Going to church was to be kissy, kissy, kissy. You know why we don't do it. And we defend ourselves consistently from the Bible. But that was a cultural custom of that time and it's not ours. So was foot washing and it was only an example. Kissing was never said to be an example. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, if you want to get, if you want to get me scared, just push me hard on kissing. Foot washing doesn't scare me a bit. I know we're 110% right on that one. Kissing, more like 90. Zach, come up and get close to me and it'll be a, it'll, it'll be a hundred. But, but brethren, are you with me? This, right. Listen, we've got to end this. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. That was not the issue, is washing feet. That's why Jesus is going to say over and over, do you know what I've done? Peter, you don't know what I'm doing. Peter knew exactly what he was doing if all we're talking about is washing feet. But it was the lesson. started out in verse 1 with love. It was the humble, the humility of laying aside garments and getting down at their feet, right. though he had the universe under his rule. Are you with me on all that? It's so simple. Amen. It's going to get simpler in just a moment, but it's simple. We're not even going to the text that overthrows any idea of a church ordinance of washing feet, but we're not there yet. Verse 14, if I then your Lord and Master have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an incredible example, as verse 15 tells us, because I'm your Lord and Master, and I got down, and I love you, and I humbled myself, and I condescended, and I served you. Guys, I've only got a couple hours left. Are you going to be fighting when I'm gone? Look what I've done. There isn't any record in the New Testament of the apostles ever washing each other's feet. But I'll tell you, there sure is a record in the New Testament of them getting along like champs. Right. In Acts chapter 1, Peter stood up and said, Men and brethren, speaking to the apostles, we've got to replace Judas Iscariot. Do you know what should have happened? Ten guys should have raised their hands and said, Who do you think you are, scoundrel? Who do you think that you, you are... 
going to stand up in front of us and tell us what to do when you're the one that denied Jesus three times with, cur with cursing and oaths? Did it happen that way? No. They all agreed and picked Matthias. Peter continued to be a leader. John continued to be a leader. James, the, the brother of our Lord, came into pre preeminence in Jerusalem. They got along beautifully. When Paul, who was an outsider, came to Jerusalem in Galatians chapter 2, and Paul lets you know this is going to be kind of tenuous, because there were brethren in Jerusalem that did not like him. Because right. he preached to the Gentiles. They didn't have to keep the law of Moses and they didn't have to be circumcised. And he's got Titus with him who wasn't circumcised. You, that doesn't mean anything to you, does it? To be in Jerusalem with Jews and to haul a man in there that's not circumcised? But he wouldn't circumcise him because to have compromised his position on circumcision because of intimidation by the false brethren in Jerusalem right. would have been compromising doctrine for the praise of men or for the approval of many. Wouldn't do it. But if you read about it, they gave each other the right hand of fellowship. I want right. you to know that those apostles got along like chips. When the Jewish apostles needed help with the Jews in Judea, Paul wrote Hebrews. When Paul needed help with the scattered Jews in his churches in Turkey and Greece, Peter wrote First and Second Peter to the strangers scattered abroad. Do you, do you understand what I'm telling you right now? Those men got along great. I'm going to come down there and shake your hand, but they gave each other the right hand of fellowship. You go to the circumcision, I'll go to the uncircumcision, and we'll both remember the poor. Galatians 2, it's beautiful. They would take rebukes of each other when Paul rebuked Peter. Now Peter's the first pope. And Paul rebuked him in Galatians chapter 2. Did Peter fight it? No. Peter writes two epistles after that. Beautiful. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Rome is the mother church. The great whore turned this passage into a tradition. The Pope trumps the brethren and primitive Baptists. He washes the feet of 13 poor men. There's no exchange. Daughter churches of Rome do it. Anglicans, Lutherans, Methodists, Presbyterians. Others include that, that have various churches having foot washing, Adventists, Anabaptists, Brethren, Primitive Baptists, Pentecostals, Mennonites, Mormons, Masons, and many other splinter groups practice some variation of foot washing by turning it into a ceremonial ritual. Pairing up at an appointed time to exchange pretend foot washing has no humility, love, service, or condescension. It's nothing. It's nothing. It misses the whole lesson. And so there, you're fussing. It's just like Rome. Thumb the beads. Our Father. Hail Mary. Hail Mary. Hail Mary. Hail Mary. Thumb the beads. Get down. Genuflect. Oh yeah, I love Jesus. Oh yeah. All, all the motions. All the motions. And no love of Christ. What's the real love of Christ? Who is my enemy in here? Who dislikes me the most that I can go be nice to as soon as this service ends? Am I up to the task? Well, then I've washed somebody's feet and I don't have to get water in a basin to do it. Verse 16, Verily, verily, I say unto you, 
The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. He's making a couple more comparisons. His first one was in verse 14. John 13, 14, I am your Lord and Master. I've done it. Verse 16 is, the servant is not greater than his Lord. I'm your Lord. You're my servants. I'm sending you. You're the sent. Because you're the servants and you're the sent, you're less than I am as the Lord and the sender, but I washed your feet. I humbled myself to you. I have loved you three and a half years in spite of all the neglect, ignorance, misunderstanding that you've shown me. I'm here for you. Verse 17, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. And going through a ritual is not doing them. Because the issue is things. Look at verse 17. If you know these things, know what? If, if you know these things, did all 12 apostles know that there was water applied to their feet by Jesus. Is that called foot washing? Is that things or thing? Is there something else at stake here? If you know these things, what things? I have loved you the whole ministry, and I'm loving you right to the very end. I, your Lord and Master, am not ashamed to take my garments off and to get down at your feet and go through every motion that a slave would go through. Will you do that for each other? Things. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do it. No. Correct me. Happy are ye if ye do them. Amen. The plural things right. contained in what we just read. Now go to 1 Timothy 5.10 so that we can go to lunch. 1 Timothy 5.10. Wonderful passage. Oh, John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. I'll try to share a little tiny bit with you for the Lord's Supper. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 all the way to verse 16 is about widows indeed. Widows indeed were real, genuine widows the kind that were supposed to be supported full-time by the church if they didn't have family to take care of them and were destitute and needed it. A widow indeed. In qualifying those widows indeed, Paul gave Timothy a list which has been used for 2,000 years and should be used of what makes a widow indeed. What makes a widow that gets put on the church payroll and get supported. Here's the list. Verse 9. Let not a widow be taken into the number. This isn't church membership. This is being a widow indeed. This is being supported by the church. Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old. She's got to be 60. Having been the wife of one man, she couldn't have had more than one husband. Three, we're, you're into verse 10. Well reported of for good works. She has a great reputation for being a great Christian. If she have brought up children, she's trained children well. If she have lodged strangers, she's used her house for hospitality to strangers. If she have washed the saints' feet, she's washed the feet of other church members. If she have relieved the afflicted, she's gone to try to help those that were 
indigent or in trouble, if she have diligently followed every good work. There's the list. Okay, in the list is if she have washed the saints' feet. This list is a list of things that not all church members did. Only exceptional widows did these things. Notice, there is nothing in this list that all church members do. There is no faith. There is no baptism. There is no Lord's Supper. There is no singing. There is no attending church. All church members do those things. These things separate good church members from bad church members, great church members from average church members. These are the qualifications for the exceptional woman that should get exceptional treatment from the church, and one of them is washing the saints' feet. This is the only other reference in the New Testament, and by it being in this list, it tells us that church members didn't wash feet as a ceremonial ritual. Because then everyone would have washed feet and it wouldn't be a qualifying mark of a widow indeed. Can you all follow that? The Lord in his mercy in 1990 slapped your pastor around with 1 Timothy 5.10 and I thank him and love him for that. And it wasn't 1990 either. And it wasn't 1989. And it wasn't 1988. I wrestled. I struggled. I checked. I rethought. I prayed. Is it really that easy? Because once you see it, you say, it is that easy. But we don't change anything until we're overwhelmed with evidence. And 1 Timothy 5.10 is overwhelming. Now, you don't really need 1 Timothy 5.10 if you were to read John 13 with understanding. And all the Lord's references, do you know what I just did? Because it wasn't washing feet. That was just an example of what he did. But when we get this verse, thank you, Lord. And so we don't wash feet. Pedicure business took a hit. Thank you, blessed God. I tried to do it as eagerly, as zealously, as fervently as I could in two churches. For a number of years, 12 years. This is John 13. Love is the greatest. Humility is the greatest. Pride is terrible. Are we willing to do what Jesus did for Peter? What Jesus did for Judas? What Jesus Jesus did for all 12? Are we willing to serve each other in this church? Because if we do, happy are you if you know these things and do them. There's happiness that results from doing it. Now just a little... Just a little rule of thumb. In general, in general, the happiest people in this church and the happiest people in any church are the people that do the most for others. And you can tell by their faces. There are people that sit in here and look at me on Sundays that I can't tell if you're a Christian because there's no joy, there's no happiness, there's no excitement. And, according to the general rule, you don't do very much or nothing for other people. But it's the ones that do the most for other people that are the happiest because they're outside themselves serving and they're fulfilling this verse. If I didn't have a little general rule like that, then the verse wouldn't be true. If I am making up the general rule to fit scripture, it doesn't matter because there is still a general rule because of the scripture. 
I just happen to know it. I'm 60 years old. I've watched it all my life. I knew what made my parents happy. And it wasn't being served. It was serving. And I thank God for the family that he dropped me into. And I want to encourage you. Everybody wants to be happy. I want to be happy. You want to be happy. Happy are ye if you know these things and do them. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.